0: I'd like to welcome everyone uh, to the first of the president's uh, lectures this year. For those of you who are uh, regular attendees of this uh, lecture series, you will know that these lectures were created uh, by myself nine years ago so that we in the Princeton University community would have an opportunity to hear what uh, each one of us uh, is doing uh, uh, from a scholarly perspective. Um, It was my experience that in molecular biology that we would have speakers coming from all over the world all the time to tell us about what they were doing. And we often didn't know what the person in the next building or even in the next laboratory was working on. And so this is both to uh, inform us, but I think it's primarily to celebrate and to celebrate the quality of scholarship uh, conducted on this campus uh, by members of the Princeton University faculty. Uh, This is the first of these lectures this year, and let me just uh, alert all of you that on December the 2nd, uh, Nolan McCarty, uh, professor of politics and the associate dean of the Woodrow Wilson School, will be giving a lecture on uh, the polarization in American politics, a timely subject indeed. And then on March 24th, uh, Professor Ginger Zakian from the Department of Molecular Biology will be talking, I believe, about uh, the uh, implications at the ends of chromosomes. Um, But we are greatly um, honored uh, this afternoon as the first lecturer in this series to have my friend and colleague, uh, Professor Dennis Feeney, professor of classics uh, at Princeton. And I have to tell you, I would not have predicted that he would have chosen as a title for his lecture, Wormholes and Time Machines." So in the great tradition of great titles, um, uh, predict wonderful lectures. I I think we are in for uh, an enormous treat uh, this afternoon. Uh, To introduce Professor Feeney, I've asked his colleague in the Department of Classics, Bob Castor, who is the Kennedy Foundation Professor of Latin Languages and Literature, to introduce uh, Dennis. Bob.
1: When I was Chair of Classics in uh, 2000 uh, and 2001, Dennis Feeney's uh, first year at Princeton, Uh, I had occasion to write in my annual report to the dean of the faculty that, quote, there is literally no senior scholar of Latin today whom I'd rather have as a colleague. Nearly a decade farther on, my view has changed only in being held more firmly and more warmly for any number of reasons. For starters, Dennis is one of two or three most influential and prominent scholars of Latin poetry and Roman culture active in the world today. His earlier books, The Gods and Epic, and Literature and Religion in Rome, have done fundamental work in defining our understanding of the ways in which traditional religious thought shaped Roman literature and how, in turn, Roman literature shaped Roman religious practice. His most recent book, Caesar's Calendar, on the representation of time in Roman literature and the differences between the Greek and Roman conceptions, has opened a new field for discussion and been instantly influential. And at the same time that he's been producing these books that must be counted milestones, he has edited a highly innovative series of books on Latin literature for Cambridge University Press and written a steady stream of book, uh, of penetrating and always readable essays and reviews on a terrifically impressive range of subjects. In a day when a scholar can earn a major reputation as a Latinist without leaving, say, the confines of Augustan Rome, Dennis's writings have ranged widely over Republican and imperial literature, and then some. His unwillingness to plow and re the same plot of land is also evident in his latest project, which asks how, and especially why, Rome came to have a literature at all. And it is characteristic <laughs> of uh, his penetration that he is approaching the subject by asking us to fundamentally rethink the basic categories that define it, the categories of translation, of history, of myth, and literature itself. So with Dennis on the corridor in East Pine, both his colleagues and his students know that they have a generous and inexhaustible source of stimulation within easy reach. I'm just delighted that the president's lecture series is giving the wider university community the chance to enjoy what we get to to enjoy every day. And so I'm very pleased to introduce my friend and colleague, Dennis Feeney. Will tell us today about wormholes and time machines.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I must thank Bob for those very, very kind words. Um, It's a fragment of an early Roman tragedy, where Hector says to his father Priam that it is very touching laudari. Our Laudato Wiro to be praised by a man who has himself been praised. So I'm very touched. Thank you very much. And I'd like to thank the President as well for her gracious invitation uh, to to speak to you on wormholes and time machines. (laughs) Does everybody have a map or access to a map? It may be helpful as we go along. Is the sound level all right? People can hear me. It's not too loud. It's okay. So we are uh, in the eighth book of Virgil's Aeneid, the eighth out of 12 books. And what we're going to do is to follow Virgil's hero Aeneas as he goes to the place where 333 years in the future, uh, we will see the city of Rome come into being. First, the story so far. Troy has fallen. Priam is dead. The city has been taken by the Greeks and a very small band of People have managed to escape, and they are led by Aeneas to safety. The best research of Virgil's day put this event, the fall of Troy, in what we would call 1184 BC, and it's very impressive testimony to the sophistication of ancient scholarship that they were able to give such a precise date to something that didn't actually happen.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> now, it, it looks as if Virgil is actually working with an eccentric date for the fall of Troy—not 1184, but a thousand year, uh, years. Ago. 100 years later, 1084, Aeneas and his people have been wandering all around the Mediterranean for seven years since the fall of Troy. So let's say we're in 1077 BC. That's the main time frame for the fundamental narrative, the basic plot of our poem. And uh, Aeneas has finally arrived in Latium. Aeneas How's that? There we go. Thank you. Aeneas has gone up the coast here, and he's stopped at the mouth of the river Tiber, and this is the place where later will be the great uh, port of Rome, Ostia. And he's founded a city there, or a camp, uh, which he hopes perhaps one day will be a city. And he's called it, what you might expect him to call it. He's called it Troy. He's called it Troia. He has a problem. Immediately uh, a war breaks out with the local people and he faces the same problem that generations of uh, Roman commanders and generals are going to face in the future history of Rome. It's quite easy in the ancient world to carry men around in ships but it's very hard to carry horses. So he hasn't got any cavalry. So he needs some allies. Again and again if you read Roman history you find Roman generals turning up trying to find local people who can provide them with horses. The Romans were never great horsemen. And he hears... That up the river, here, sorry, I'm red colorblind, so I can't always see the dot. Uh, where the big blob is, uh, that's, uh, that's the city of Rome. In later times, in, in Aeneas' day, it's a tiny little hamlet called Palanteum. There are Greeks living there, Arcadians who've come from the Peloponnese. Uh, their king is called Evander. And his reconnaissance tells him that they have cavalry. So he's going to go up the river uh, to the site of Palantaeum, try and strike up an alliance with these people so he can get some cavalry to help him in the war. Now, it's obviously useful for Aeneas to get some cavalry, but the reason that Virgil wants to take him to this place is clearly not exactly so he can get 300 horsemen, which is what he ends up with, but so that he can have the opportunity to put his hero, Aeneas, onto the place where Rome will be. Again, according to the time chart that the god Jupiter lays out in a great big speech at the beginning of Book 1 of our poem, this will happen 333 years in the future. So Rome is still a long time ahead when Aeneas is going to go to the site. What Virgil is doing here is bringing together the two time frames that matter most throughout his poem. The incipiently historical time frame of 1077, for most ancient scholars, The fall of Troy was the beginning of history, or at least the beginning of something that later became more like history. Before that is a heroic time, uh, Aeneas, in fact, is the last demigod. His mother is the goddess Venus, and he is the last of the half-breeds. So this is the, the, the time of the narrative itself, 1077, let's say. Virgil is writing, let's say, 20, just to keep the arithmetic easy. So what he wants to do all the way through the poem is to bring these two time frames into dialogue. The distant past, uh, where the foundational acts that were going to lead to the establishment of the Roman Empire were first set in motion by Aeneas and his people. And then the present, where Aeneas's descendant, Augustus, the first emperor, is inhabiting the city and directing the empire. So these two time frames are always talking to each other throughout the poem. Virgil has various techniques for doing this. He has prophecy in, of various sorts uh, throughout the poem. But in Book 8 he can actually not just put these two time frames in dialogue with each other, but collapse them together, make them simultaneous, squish them together as he puts his hero onto the topography of the city. Aeneas, as we'll see, is actually uh, not just going to tread the ground that Augustus will later tread. He is going to stay the night in Augustus's house, or he's going to stay the night in Aranda's house, and as we'll see, this is going to be the place where Augustus himself lives. So, the Aeneid as a whole is always striving to join up these two time frames, to create a causative story, to create a dialogue between the past and the present, in order to shed light upon the nature of the Roman enterprise, what the Romans are really like, what the Roman Empire is really like. And on the site of Rome, as I say in Book 8, he can collapse the past and the present together. Now, this is where the, the wormholes come in, and I have to admit, this is a shameless bit of advertising. It is rather meretricious of me to put wormholes into the title, but I I do actually find wormholes uh, a productive metaphor for thinking about what Virgil is doing here. Now, traversable wormholes, I I sound as if I'm talking about, but I'm really ventriloquizing Wikipedia, traversable wormholes (laughs) can be imagined as tunnels that connect disparate parts of space-time. Virgil's wormhole is the Roman calendar. As we'll see, through the means of the Roman calendar, he can can, can annihilate that thousand-year difference between his time and the time of Aeneas. He's enabled by the identity of days that the Roman calendar creates to shuttle back and forth between 1077 BC and 20 BC. The difference from a real wormhole, if I'm allowed to use the word real uh, in talking about wormholes, Uh, is that uh, real wormholes or physicists take you from uh, one time to another but also one place to another, whereas in the case of Virgil, the metaphor is incomplete because we're moving always from one time to another, but we're rooted in the same place. We're in the city of Rome all the time. So as he conducts this operation, Virgil all the time is, is asking the historian's fundamental question. He's asking, what must it have been like Every historian is a romantic at heart, even if they get trained out of it. And this this impulse to imagine what it must have been like is fundamental to any work of history. So this is what Virgil is doing here. He's asking his readers to imagine what it must have been like 1,050 years before. And the confrontation that he sets up enables him to ask very penetrating questions about the nature of the Roman Empire and the fate of the Roman Empire. But still, it all depends on Virgil asking his readers what must it have been like. It's harder for us, of course, because we have to imagine what it must have been like, imagining what it must have been like. Uh, So it's more more difficult. But in this uh, pursuit, in trying to find out what it must have been like, imagining what it must have been like, we get some help from an unexpected quarter from uh, Benito Mussolini, as we'll see. Anyway, let's go up uh, the river to the site of Rome. I don't know how many people have a text. In case anyone has a text, we're at line 98, I think, of book 8. So you don't need it. So as we go along, Virgil says, Sol medium caelii conscendrat Ignius orbem. The sun, the fiery sun had climbed up to the middle part of the globe of heaven, which is what epic poets say when they mean it's noon, but it's also (laughs) Virgil's way of already flagging the fact that the then and the now are leaking into each other. Because in 20 BC, if you'd gone up the River Tiber and you'd gone around the bend and the city of Rome had started to come into sight, you would have seen a flashing gleam of the sun, but it would have been bouncing off the golden chariot of the sun on top of the Temple of Apollo that Augustus had just finished building. This was dedicated on October the 9th, 28 BC, brand new, the most magnificent, the most splendid building in the city. So the sun that Aeneas sees is the natural sun, the sun that the readers know they would see if they were in his position, is the sun bouncing off the roof of the Temple of Apollo. As we come into sight of the city of Rome, Virgil activates his his usual brilliant technique of impressionistic word order, so often Virgil uh, presents us things as we feel them, as we see them. So they see, um, well, most of them are rowing, so they, they, don't, they don't see it. But Aeneas sees, uh, cum muros, the walls, arkenkwe and then far off a citadel, akrara domorum tecta, the scattered roofs of houses. There we are, that's Evander's Rome. And he continues, Quae nunc romana potentia caelo ai clavit, which now Roman power has made equal to heaven, tum res in evandros habebat, but then Evander held as a meager possession. So this sentence introduces the two most important words in the book, now and then, nunc and tum. And the time play contrast between the present and the past is introduced as soon as we get a glimpse of the site of Rome. And it's a morally charged contrast. It's not just a time contrast. It's not just look at the difference. There's an immense moral power operating in the contrast between where Rome is now in 20 BC and where Rome was uh, a thousand years ago. So the antithesis then is between the mighty power of the current empire and the admirable poverty and self-denial of the simple life led by the people on site of Rome at the time. To have an empire, you need wealth, power, organization, finance. But the values that the Romans celebrated as being proper to themselves, germane to their origins, the ones that uh, related to the the life led by their ancestors were quite the opposite. They were uh, poverty... Self-denial, harsh endurance, toleration of wretched circumstances in the service of the community. The Romans, understandably, tried to have it both ways. They tried to believe that they can maintain a rich and powerful empire at the same time uh, as they are preserving their ancestral values. It's rather like the kind of oxymoron at the heart of Ronald Reagan's ideology. You have the independent tough cowboy who is the master of Star Wars. And we can believe these two things simultaneously. If we want. (laughs) Now, Virgil is not so sure that this kind of double thing is sustainable. This clash of values is basic to the poem. It's basic to the empire. uh, And it's activated here by the device of the time gap. It's even more complicated at this stage because the people who are living on the site of Rome, where Rome will one day be, the people of Evander who best embody this idealised old Roman way of life, stern, tough, self denying, are in fact uh, Greeks. Now Roman prejudices about the Greeks map pretty closely onto our preferred ideas about the Greeks. And our preferred ideas about the contrast between the Romans and the Greeks were very close to the way that the Romans and Greeks themselves configured the issues. So when we think of the Greeks, of course, uh, we think of an athletic citizenry who are heavily into the performing arts, whereas we all know what the Romans look like. uh, (laughs) He doesn't look much better from the side. Uh, The the students who are here from the humanities sequence were introduced to this guy by coincidence earlier on uh, today in uh, Professor Sidney's dazzling lecture on Greek and Roman art. And I can do no better than quote the words that he was using about this man. You look at that man's face, and he is worn out. He has devoted his life, sacrificed his life to the service of the state, and every battle he's fought and every committee he's sat on is etched into that face. Uh, this is a very complicated story, um, it's a bit unfair on the Greeks because the Greeks actually invented this whole polarity between us the tough guys and then the soft guys. During the Persian wars they went to a lot of trouble to construct this antithesis. So the, the Greeks had a very sophisticated story about how the Persians can't be real men because Persians wear trousers and love women whereas real men like us Greeks wear skirts and love boys. So then the goalposts, the goalposts move to the West and the Greeks become the Easterners and the Romans become the tough, uh, self-denying, hard men. So it is a complicated tale. Now the Romans love to tell the story about how they lived a the life that turned you into that kind of person uh, for a long time until they got corrupted by Greek civilization and went soft. But in fact there is no time in Roman history you can go back to before there is a Greek element in Roman culture. At every opportunity, I quote a wonderful aphorism by Tim Cornell, a great historian, distinguished historian of uh, early Rome, where he says, an independent or autonomous Latin culture never had a chance to emerge. The Romans are always involved with Greek culture. And this is what Virgil is telling us here. You go to the site of Rome, 333 years before it's even founded, and there are Greeks living there, and not just Greeks living there, but Greeks who embody the ideals that the Romans loved to fantasize about having been lived by their ancestors. So this whole story always reminds me of the the first page of Stephen Hawking's Brief History of Time which is as far as some humanists get I'm afraid. Uh,
0: (laughs) But uh, he tells
2: the tale of Bertrand Russell uh, giving a lecture about the nature of the universe and the solar system and how it all worked and at the end little old lady put up her hand and said you've got it all wrong because the world is on a flat tray, and the flat tray is on top of a tortoise. And so Russell, perhaps uncharacteristically, not wanting to be too mean to her, said, well, what's under the tortoise? And she says, well, you're a very clever young man, but uh, you can't catch me out. It's tortoises all the way down. (laughs) And and this is how it is with Roman culture. It's, It's Greek tortoises all the way down. You can never get to a point where you say, aha, now we've reached Roman bedrock. There's no such thing. So we're getting close to the city, we need to get a view of what it's like, and uh, here your map will be handy. You can see the picture on your left, which is of course an aerial photograph of modern Rome, uh, how the ancient topography in the center still dominates. You can see here even without the handy labeling on the map I gave you, that's obviously a racetrack, the Circus Maximus. Here, whoops, if I can see it with my color blindness, there we are. That's Tiber Island. Here is the Palatine Hill, here the Colosseum, and here the Aventine Hill, just to help you orientate yourselves a little bit. Now, Tiber Island, here. Sorry, I really must get a blue one. I can't. <laughs> you can all see Tiber Island. Okay, so Tiber Island is actually the reason that Rome exists. If you uh, want to go up and down the peninsula of Italy, you really don't want to go on the eastern side, as the British Eighth Army discovered in the, in the last war. It's impossible terrain. You have to go up the western side. Uh, you hit the river Tiber. If you start at Ostia, which in those days was 12 miles from the city, now it's 15 or so because of the silt from the river, you have to walk all the way up to, to the site of the city of Rome before you can find somewhere where you can cross if you're in 800 or 750 BC. Bridges are a very serious proposition in the late Iron Age. Which is why the Roman name for the most important priest is the Pontifex, the bridge maker. So the Tiber island here did create... Afford uh, on many occasions. It was it was possible just to walk across, and if you do walk across there, then you can find yourself in a good location for a market, for a cattle market, which is what Forum Boarium means. Whoops, where is my pointer? Right. Well, anyway, by the island here, this area here at the foot of the Circus Maximus uh, is where the cattle market is and uh, the Forum Boarium. This story is very important in in our book in book 8 because we are soon going to hear Evander tell Aeneas the story of how Hercules brought a whole lot of cows down through this place on his way to Greece and there was a monster carcass living in the Aventine Hill and he stole some of the cows, Hercules discovered them, this is actually the first chapter in Dorothy Sayers' collected detective stories. So he discovered his cows, got them back, killed the monster carcass. So to get some idea, here's Tiber Island for you, to get some idea of what the city of Rome was like in Virgil's day, uh, this is where uh, Mussolini comes in. Uh, This uh, is the model of the city of Rome in uh, the Museo della Civiltà Romana, the Museum of Roman Civilization, uh, which was set up by Mussolini. This is the quintessential fascist museum. There is nothing real or authentic in the whole thing. It's all reproductions, uh, imitations, squeezes, copies. But this model is worth the price of admission. If you're someone like me who's architecturally challenged, I can't look at a plan and and visualize it. So this thing is wonderful. This here, the, the Theater of Marcellus, for example, is about this big. I mean, it's really, you know, Really big thing. And things spring to life for me when I see this model. There are two little temples here, for example, behind. This one here is the temple of Bologna, the goddess of war. This is where the Roman Senate liked to meet ambassadors from foreign countries, just to set the right tone from the start. (laughs) And behind is a little temple of Apollo that had been there for hundreds of years. Augustus didn't want any competition for his brand new Temple of Apollo, Uh, Augustus was very close to the god Apollo, they were born on the same day, the birthday of Augustus, the 23rd of September was the feast day of Apollo, so one of the things he does not only build a new Temple of Apollo for himself, but he squashes out the old one by putting the Theatre of Marcellus right up against it, so you can hardly see the thing. It used to be quite dominant and commandeering, but now, you know, you have to walk all the way around the theater and then you bump into it and say, oh, there's a temple here. So things of this kind come alive when you you see the model, at least for me. Here, again, Tiber Island, the theater of Marcellus, the Circus Maximus, the great big uh, race track. Here, of course, is the Colosseum, and so the model stops being useful at the stage where we have to say to ourselves, hmm, not all of this stuff was here in Virgil's day, so we have to take some of it away. But nonetheless, it's an extraordinarily evocative way of getting a feeling for the way that the city is laid out. Aeneas sees some people sacrificing here. Oops! Right at the end of the Circus Maximus. In the Forum Boarium, he sees some people sacrificing and he pulls in. This uh, whole area is uh, full of important cults to the god Hercules. At the end, right at the end of the of the circus, there are a whole lot of uh, altars, temples to the god Hercules. And this is what these people are doing. These are the people of Evanda sacrificing to Hercules. There's the waste course, and under this church, Santa Maria in Cosmedin is the Maxima the great big altar, whose uh, foundation is being celebra- celebrated here by Virgil. That's where they're celebrating to Hercules. There's the race course, as it is now, roughly corresponding to the view on your right. Looking back up the other way, with a Palatine Hill now on your left, this little round temple is actually a temple to Hercules, Right at the foot here, this little round temple there is the one you're seeing on the left. This temple here on the left is the back view of this temple that we're looking at there. Here's the front view. This is an area that is full of uh, trade contacts. Uh, Hercules is very popular with traders because he voyaged all over the place and suffered all kinds of hardship. So they liked to honor Hercules. And there were Greek traders here honoring Heracles. There were Roman traders honoring Hercules. There were Phoenician traders honoring Melchart, who was their equivalent of this god. This is uh, Santa Omobono, which is roughly here. And uh, there are some archaic temples here. 530 BC, uh, while kings were still ruling Rome, Someone put up this statue. You can tell it's Hercules on your left, even though his head is missing, because he's got the lion paws folded over his chest. And he is being introduced to Olympus by the goddess Minerva, by Athena. So, the importance of Hercules in this particular site is is very, very significant. They are performing sacrifice to Hercules... And uh, Virgil says at this point, as they pull in, Aeneas pulls in, he says, forte die solemnem illo rex arches honorem amphitrionia manio. just by coincidence, he says, on that very day, forte, by coincidence, die illo, on that very day, they were sacrificing to Hercules. Now, nothing in the Aeneid happens just by coincidence. It is the most muscle-bound and claustrophobic piece of work you could imagine. So this day would have been known to Virgil's readership. If you'd stopped an educated Roman in the street and said, when do they sacrifice to Hercules at the Ara Maxima, at the great altar, he would have said the 12th of August. Well, he would have said the day before the Ides of August, but anyway, we won't worry about that. Um, I'll call it the 12th of August. It's actually interesting that in Virgil's day, it wasn't called August. It wasn't called August until the year 8 BC, when a grateful senate prevailed upon a reluctant and bashful Augustus to give his name to the month. Augustus made a career out of backing into honor. So in Virgil's day, we're used to month number 7, 8, 9, 10, September, October, November, December. In Virgil's day, this was still called month number 6. There had also been a month number 5, Quintilus, but uh, Augustus' father liked that month, and he took it for himself and called it Julius, so we still call it July. And Augustus thought he'd link himself to the next one, so he took that after Virgil's death and called it Augustus, which is what we still call it more or less. But in Virgil's day, this is the day before the Ides of month number six, but I'll call it the 12th of August, so we know where we are. So as we would put it, Aeneas is arriving here on the anniversary of the deed that Hercules performed, which is now being celebrated. Hercules, on the 12th of August, killed the monster Cacus. And this is now being honored by the people of Evander on the day, on the anniversary. But there's no real Latin word for anniversary. They didn't talk like that. They just talked about the day, the same day. As far as Virgil is concerned, Aeneas is arriving on that same day. So in heroic time, before the fall of Troy, the great demigod Hercules saves the people of Palantaeum from the monster carcass. On that same day squishing together the time frames, Aeneas, 30-odd years later, is going to arrive, and he is going to establish a relationship with the people in Palatine, which is going to enable him to free them from the monster who is threatening them, the local Etruscan king. And in 29 BC, on that same day, in a wormhole that connects 1077 to 29 BC, the Emperor Augustus is going to arrive back at the city of Rome after defeating Antony and Cleopatra at Actium. There's no doubt at all that Augustus chose this day. He wanted to be sitting outside the city on the feast day of Hercules so that he could associate himself with all the connotations of victory and glory uh, accruing to that god, especially since Hercules had been Mark Antony's favorite god, so he was definitively dislodging that association. So these... Acts of deliverance are all stacking up together on top of each other in heroic time, in incipiently historical time with Aeneas, and then in historical time with Augustus. Augustus didn't only uh, sit outside the city waiting. He went in the next day, and he celebrated not one, not two, but three triumphs on the 13th, 14th, and 15th of August, the last one celebrating his capture of Egypt. Aeneas is going to stay the night with Evander and then the next day he's going to go down the road to uh, a little town on the coast and he's going to meet his mother Venus and his mother Venus is going to give him an enormous shield and on that shield is the triumph of Augustus and the battle of Actium that led to it. So these uh, triumphal acts of Augustus are being plotted into the calendar by Virgil. He wants Aeneas to be participating in this chain, uh, this typological chain of salvific acts. So they talk to each other for quite a while, Aeneas and Evander. Uh, Evander tells them all about uh, what Hercules did and how wonderful it was. And uh, then they want to go back uh, to Evander's house. One of the fundamental points about this book is that Evander lives where Augustus will later live. He lives where Romulus lived when Romulus founded the city. Evander and Romulus and Augustus are all stacking on top of each other. So Evander lives about here. We are down at the Are Maxima. So you'd think you'd just walk up the hill. But it's pretty steep. And according to Virgil, Evander is obsidus ivo. He's clogged up with age. So he's going to find it hard to go up the hill. So what we have to do to get him home comfortably, is to take a tour from the great altar all the way around here down through the Roman Forum and then back up through the back door which enables Evander not to be overstressed and also enables Virgil to lead his readership through all of the most important sites of the city's center with all of their memory associations. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to follow them as they walk and see what Virgil is able to achieve by this compare and contrast device of putting the two time frames together, 1077 and 20 BC. As they set off, uh, Evander has plenty to say. He's a bit of a Nestor figure. Those of you who've read Homer's Iliad will remember how much Nestor had to say for himself. So Evander talks a lot, and he's, he's guiding Aeneas through the city And here's another strange time game, because Aeneas looks like a modern tourist. If you went to a big city like Rome, or Athens, or Delphi uh, in 20 BC, there'd be plenty of people who'd take a little bit of money and show you around the place and show you all the sights. And so Aeneas here is a a modern tourist, being shown all around the city in this bizarre, anachronistic fashion. Evander is able to tell him as they walk about uh, the golden age that he very recently witnessed. very end of the Golden Age. Saturn came and lived in this site and he established law for the people and set up a just community. That Golden Age is already gone but Evander is the immediately post-lapsarian man. He's still got a whiff of the Golden Age in his nostrils. He can be nostalgic about it. So we walk here and we're going to walk along. He points do all kinds of things as he's going. I won't won't talk about them all, Uh, but he does talk about the asylum of Romulus. This is a site just about here. Just about here. This is an area that Romulus, when he was founding the city, established where anyone could come and get sanctuary. He had hardly anyone to found the city with, so he simply said anyone can come and be a Roman." So all of the local murderers and cattle rustlers and rapists went into the asylum and that was the beginning of the Roman people. (laughs) They outgrew it, uh, perhaps, uh, though this founding myth obviously rang bells with some of the people that they bulldozed. We walk past the flank of the Capitoline Hill where the Temple of Jupiter is. And Evander points out the, temp- the site uh, at the top of the hill and says there's something holy up there. Virgil introduces this by saying he gets to the capitol, which is Aurea golden now, Olim Silvestre Rubus Hordidulis, but at that time bristling with woody thickets. So here is this amazing golden temple. It's an extraordinary thing, the Temple of Jupiter. It was uh, established... Uh, traditionally in 509 BC, the year that the last king was kicked out. It's a huge building. At the time that it was put up, it was one of the very biggest temples in the whole Mediterranean. And again, the model is very uh, evocative. I love the way that the temple of Jupiter here, for example, over here is the temple of his wife, Juno. So the way they're just facing back off each other, not communicating quite the way that they should is uh, very indicative of many of the myths uh, told about them. At this point, Evander says something, uh, oh, wait a minute, sorry, the Temple of Jupiter here, that's the same view now, if you like, looking from the forum back up to the Temple of Jupiter would have been up here. The foundation walls of the Temple of Jupiter are still there. You can still go and see them. Uh, it's really an extraordinary thing. I hadn't realized the first time I went to Rome, and I was really knocked out. The second time I went to Rome, I had a friend with me, and uh, we were up in the, uh, in the Museo Capitolino. I said, oh, we must go and see the walls of the Temple of Jupiter. She wasn't terribly excited about it, but we went along, and there was a corridor going down, and there was a guard sitting in a in chair blocking the way, and there was a big sign saying, "Cuso." So I went up to him and I said, can we go and see the temple? And he said, no, it's closed. And I said, well, you know, this friend of mine here, she's very keen to see it. She'd never seen it before, you know. And I went on like this. And after a while, he shrugged his shoulders. He says, you know, there are old walls all over the place. You know, why are you saying <laughs> Well, anyway, it's an amazing sight. And then we come here. We're now going to turn right into the forum. These here are the remains of the Temple of Saturn, And it's exactly as we make this turn that Evander says something extraordinary to Aeneas. He says, look, here are the ruins of the city of Saturn." This is a vertiginous moment. I mean, we're on the site of Rome 333 years before Rome is even founded. And there are already ruins there. This gives us a glimpse into the fate of empire, which is rather scary and it gets developed uh, quite soon afterwards as we'll see. Here is the same, those the same columns that you see there at the Temple of Saturn. Ignore this, this is Temple of Vespasian which wasn't there. So we now turn into the forum. Here are the columns of the Temple of Saturn. And in that, Evander and Aeneas are turning and walking down the forum like this. They're walking down the Sacra Villa, the the sacred way. Here is Saturn. And to guide us as we walk down the sacred way, we're going to be heading towards the temple of Vesta. And those three columns, which are the remains of the temple of Castor and Pollux, which uh, Malin Lovett chose uh, for the wonderful poster that he produced for my talk. So that's going to guide us as we walk. Just as a reminder of the way that the city of Rome was filled with architectural memory of the past, of history and mythology, uh, this is a mock-up. The originals are smashed and being uh, recovered, but this is a mock-up of uh, a... An important frieze that was put up by Augustus here in the front of the thing that's marked on your map is the Basilica Emilia. And uh, it shows incidents from Roman history. Uh, Romulus has all his men, of course, there, but they have no women. So they invite the neighbors along for a party and steal their women, so that's what that is. That's the rape of the Sabine women. The Sabines... uh, got angry and tried to capture the city. And uh, anyway, this is a, a poor Roman a girl who tried to betray the city to the Sabines, and they killed her. And uh, <laughs> I always think of this when you know, cultural critics, art historians, and, and uh, literary people tend to assume that people know uh, and understand what they're looking at. But if you... <laughs> If you think of this snapshot that was taken by a friend of mine, Jeff Wills, when he was visiting Rome, this woman obviously has no idea what these uh, things behind her (laughs) say. So if we want to marry you, we'll steal you, and if you get out of hand, we'll kill you. Anyway, sorry, that's a bit by the by. But I mean, the city of Rome was was filled with uh, memories of the past. So... We are now walking down the Roman Forum, down the Sacra Via towards Vesta, with Castrum Pollux here, and Evander uh, is leading Aeneas along. And as they're talking, uh, Virgil says, "Passimque armenta vedebant. Everywhere they saw cows, Romanos foro in the Roman Forum et lautis mugire carinis and mooing in the posh carinae." So there are cows wandering all over this place as they walk along. And it won't have escaped your notice that the picture on the left looks much more like the Rome of Evander's day than the picture on the right. On the left you see Rome in 2010, an open space with ruins. Picture on the right, you see the glory of Augustus's Rome. And this irony has been relished by all kinds of people. The idea that Virgil's readers are being invited to imagine a glorious and magnificent sight when we modern readers know that in fact it reverted to being a, a pastoral wilderness. In the Middle Ages, the Roman Forum uh, was called Campo Vicino, Cal pasture. Gibbon, in chapter 71 of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, describes the view of Rome seen from the capitol in the 15th century. And he says, her primeval state, such as she might appear in a remote age when Evander entertained the stranger of Troy, has been delineated by the fancy of Virgil. This capitolian rock was their savage and solitary thicket. In the time of the poet, it was crowned with the golden roofs of a temple. The temple is overthrown, the gold has been pillaged, the wheel of fortune has accomplished her revolution and the sacred ground is again disfigured with thorns and brambles. The hill of the Capitol on which we sit was formerly the head of the Roman Empire, illustrated by the footsteps of so many triumphs. This spectacle of the world, how it has fallen, how changed, how defaced. The path of victory is obliterated by vines, and the benches of the senators are concealed by a dunghill. The forum of the Roman people, where they assembled to enact their laws and elect their magistrates, is now enclosed for the cultivation of pot herbs, or thrown open for the reception of swine and buffaloes. So it's vintage given. Uh, the crucial question, of course, is could Virgil and his readers have been aware of the, this potential irony? Uh, it seems to me that they could very well have been. Virgil is perfectly well aware of what historians like Herodotus had been teaching people for hundreds of years the revolutions of empire, the transition of power from one area to another, the fact that history never stops, that no empire ever lasts forever. People in Roman times had known this for a long time. 146 BC, one of the most striking episodes in Roman history, to my mind. The ancient enemy Carthage has been uh, attacked by the Romans. The commanding general, Scipio, is standing there with Polybius, the Greek historian, a friend of his is writing up these events. He's sort of embedded in the North African expeditionary force. They're watching extraordinary scenes. A city that has been a magnificent and powerful city for, for centuries is uh, blazing and falling into ruin. Mothers are uh, slitting their children's throats and throwing them off the walls and then jumping off after them. The, the, the capture of Carthage, it was, it was like the Battle of Stalingrad. The Romans just moved through city block by city block, demolishing everything until they finally erase the whole thing. And as the Roman general, Scipio, is standing there watching this, he starts to cry. And Polybius says, what is it? And this is 146 BC. He, he quotes Homer. He says, Esita emar hotan potoloile ilios here, kai priamos kai laos priamu jumeleoio. There will be a day when Troy will be destroyed and the people of Priam, and the people, uh, and Priam himself. And Polybius, who's a rather literal-minded person, said, Oh, you mean Rome? He said, Yes. (laughs) (laughs) He means Rome. There's also a nice little literary hook to this. Uh, The great city Mycenae, which uh, was the home of Homer's uh, Agamemnon. There's a Greek poem surviving from around the time of Virgil, set in Mycenae and the, the Greek writing the poem says look what's happened to us the Trojans i.e. the Romans have come back and got their revenge Mycenae is now there was once the great imperial city is now just a place where cows wander around mooing this is a good joke in Greek because in Greek Mycenae is mukenai and the verb to moo is moukamai, just as in Latin the verb to moo is mugire so we can be confident that the Proto-Indo-European cow did say moo. So, we can <laughs> so this mooing here is simultaneously uh, an image of pastoral innocence and an image of post-imperial desolation. And if you look at your map, you'll see that the place where Evander and Aeneas uh, are going to get onto the Palatine is through Porta Mugonia, Moo Gate, which the Romans kept calling Moo Gate because it reminded them of the good old days when they were just cowboys. This is a very important site connected with this same nexus of calendrical dates. This is the temple of Julius Caesar. Uh, and this spot here is where Julius Caesar became a god. So next time you're in Rome, it's an interesting spot. <coughs> At the other end of the forum, Mark Antony made his well-known Friends Romans Countrymen" speech. The outraged people got the corpse of the assassinated Caesar, ran down to the other end of the forum to hear, which was then an empty place, burnt it. And that's where Augustus founded the temple to his father. And this too is linked to the triumph in 29 B.C., he arrives at the city of the Feast of Hercules on the 12th of August. He celebrates 13th, 14th, 15th, three triumphs in a row. Two days to get over the hangover on the fifteenth 16th, um, 16th and 17th. And then on the 18th, he dedicated the temple. Obviously, as a projection for what his own eventual fate uh, would be. And he was right. He, he did become a god himself. This is the Temple of Vesta. These are the three columns of the Temple of Castor. And linking the Temple of Castor and the Temple of Julius Caesar is what used to be one of the most controversial monuments in the city of Rome. This is a triumphal arch. The question is, who dedicated it and for what victory? And stirred on by nothing but romantic impulse. I had always believed that this had to be the arch commemorating the Actium victory, because this is the arch that Aeneas and Evander walk under on the way to Evander's house. And this is the victory and the triumph which are going to be commemorated on the shield that Aeneas receives from his mother the next day. So it was very gratifying for me to read some years ago an article by John Rich at the University of Nottingham establishing beyond any shadow of a doubt that this was the Actian arch though no doubt my colleagues uh, will have things to say about that. It makes Book 8 much better, so I'd like to think it makes the archaeology much better too. This is from the Palatine Hill, looking down at the Temple of Vesta, the Temple of Julius Caesar. This is the rather nice house that the Vestal Virgins had in back. So we have walked down the forum here, past Castor and Pollux, and right about where the Arch of Titus is, which of course wasn't there in Virgil's day, we're going to hang a right and go through Mugate, Porta Mugonia, to the house of Evander, which is where the house of Augustus will later be, and also where they liked to think the house of Romulus had been. So we have gone from here, from the great altar, under Santa Maria and Cosmedon, we've walked around like this, down through the forum up here in Virgil's day, in Augustus's day the top of the Palatine was not the monstrous thing you see on the right uh, the Palatine was sort of the western section it was a, it was a nice part of town uh, where people uh, of means liked to hang out and it wasn't the eventual uh, uh, palace, of course the word uh, palace, our word palace comes from the palatine, Uh, the emperors successively took the whole place over and it grew and grew and grew. Uh, It wasn't quite like that in Virgil's day. So again, the, the model is helpful and unhelpful at once. The crucial part of the hill is here, which corresponds in the model to... here. This is the temple of Apollo and Augustus' house is intimately entwined with the temple of Apollo. This is the new temple of Apollo, not the old one that had been squashed out by the theater of Marcellus. This is the brand new temple dedicated in 28. Augustus had been born on the Palatine Hill on the 23rd of September 63, but he wanted to establish links with the deep origins of Rome that's why he wanted to live right where people said Romulus had lived. And in front, just about here, here, the Romans maintained a very interesting custom. They had a little hut of Romulus. And if something happened to it, they'd build it up again. There's a story of a crow that picked up a lump of burning meat from a sacrificial altar and it went flying up and it got hot. it dropped it, fell on the hut of Romulus, it burnt down because it was made out of humble straw. They immediately rebuild it. So it stays there as a visual reminder of the humble origins of the Roman people. Augustus wanted to be associated with this. Augustus was phenomenally brilliant at having his cake and eating it too. He wanted to be associated with the magnificence of his new Temple of Apollo. At the same time, he wanted to brag about his connections to the humble past. He lived in a comparatively humble house. I mean, not really humble-humble, you know, but uh, nothing like as grand as it could have been. He used to boast about the fact that his wife and daughter spun their own wool and made their own garments for him and all of this sort of thing. What Virgil is doing uh, is making us wonder whether this uh, confidence trick can really be pulled off. When Evander uh, introduces Aeneas into his house, he tells him, uh, do not come disdainful of my poverty. And as the mighty hero dips his head and goes into the house, Virgil says he's going into the angusti tecti, the narrow house. All you have to do is flip one letter in on that word and you go from angusti to augusti. You go from narrowness to augustness, magnificence. So this is uh, a movement which is activated in the blink of a letter. It's amazingly complex and interesting sight in all kinds of ways. Uh, up by the Temple of Apollo is also the temple of the Great Mother, who had been introduced by the Romans in 204 BC to defeat Hannibal. And it worked, they did defeat him. Uh, She was a a very strange goddess. Um, She came from Asia Minor. If you wanted to be a priest of the Great Mother, the price of admission was very high. You had to whip yourself up into religious frenzy and castrate yourself with a piece of obsidian. Roman citizens were not allowed to be priests uh, of the Great Mother. (laughs) (laughs) You can go into Augustus' house. The first time I went in, I had to bribe my way in. Uh, Since then, it's been closed. And I was last in Rome in May, and I didn't have the wit to contact the Soprintendensis, so I haven't been there for quite a while. They found there Augustus' study. It's a painting from Augustus' study, This is the goddess uh, Nike, victory, with her wings. This is the god Apollo, off duty like his patron, sitting down and relaxing. hundred yards away, in the temple, is a statue of this god standing up, holding his lyre. You can see over his back a quiver with the lid on, but he could take the lid off. Right by the Great Mother, this is the Great Mother, right on this part of the hill here, Uh, there there was a preliminary dig in 1907 and then there was another dig in 1948. Uh, Archaeologists found, found these. There are some more of them. You may be wondering what they are. Uh, These are holes in the ground. (laughs) And they come from something like that. You can plot the posts into these holes in the ground. And these are trenches which have been dug in the soft tufa to run away the rainwater. And if you've ever been caught, as I have, in a tent in a Roman thunderstorm. You understand what a good idea it is to have such a trench. There was a Bulgarian beside me who had obviously been listening to the weather forecast and dug an enormous ditch all the way around his tent. And I thought, what is he doing that for? Well, anyway, I found out. So that's the hut, if you want to make it. Now, these holes here are not the holes of the hut of Romulus that Augustus maintained. I mean, these are the huts of the real Romans, if you like. These date to about 800, 750 BC. And these are the remains left by the first people who inhabited the site. There are many really extraordinary, wonderful things in the city of Rome. But for me, these holes in the ground are the most poignant and the most moving. I remember bumping into them totally by accident and thinking, what on earth are these, and looking them up in my blue guide. And you stand there staring at these, and then you look up at the still magnificent city all around you. And then you let your imagination take you to the province of Britain and down into Morocco and then through Libya and to Egypt and up into Syria and to Romania and to the Danube and to Germany and back down into Italy, where 800 years later the descendants or the heirs of the people who made those holes in the ground were ruling. And then you look down again at the holes in the ground. This is why I always find whenever I go to the site of Rome, I'm being challenged again to join Virgil in connecting now and then. Thank you.
0: I'm sure Professor Finney will be happy to answer questions. I questions. So maybe I could begin the questions by, by saying I was fascinated by your report, particularly when you were talking about Carthage. Hmm that there was an awareness of the transitory nature of empire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's... It, it, that implies both a, a, a deep sort of understanding, appreciation, awareness of history going back a long time.
2: Yeah. I think um, Herodotus is the person who first lays this out uh, in, the, in the Western historical tradition. The Athenians and the Spartans pull off this astounding feat of defeating the Persian Empire. They were going to be turned into another satrapy, and it should have been pretty straightforward. Somehow they managed to win. And at the end of his histories, he's able to convey to us the idea that the Athenians have already stepped over. The Athenians are already transgressing and committing mistakes which are going to have repercussions. At the beginning of Polybius' history, he says that there have been great empires in the past, and he goes through them. The Medes, the Persians, uh, the, the Athenians, the Spartans, the, the um, Empire of Alexander the Great. They're all transitory. They're all transitory. And, and one is taken over by another. This is, this is part of what Polybius sees. So it's, it's a sort of burden of empire as being moved, as it were. Um, so they, they knew perfectly well that, that there was no end of history. And... If Virgil had been able to have a dialogue with Francis Fukuyama, it would have been short. They, uh, <laughs> so there, there are two strange movements in this poem, and in the empire as a whole, in a way. Partly, it's trying to assert, with the strength of desperation, that we can contain uh, the force of entropy, that we can create something which will endure. And, and they talked about the orbs aeterna, the eternal city, and it meant something. It meant a lot. On the other hand, there's, you know, they've... they've lived through and uh, read about such extraordinary transformations in the in the in the imperial scene in the mediterranean that you'd have to be blind to believe that you really can put a stop to the movement of history so i, I don't think that virgil reading this poem after reading this poem that virgil allows us to believe that history will simply stop yeah.
0: so less hubris than there is today
2: well, I, I I thought I'd leave it to you to draw the conclusions. But, uh, no, no, I mean really, it's um, yeah. it's, it's a it's a very sophisticated uh, view of, of uh, of history. Yeah. Scott. Yes, sir. Professor Feeney, you 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 talked
1: about the influence of the Greeks on the founding of Rome and the initial structure of Rome. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Absolutely. Um, that's, that's a very important point. Uh, and, and again, one of the great themes of our poem is precisely the way that there are so many different cultures in the area who've had an impact. He uh, is, after, after Aeneas leaves uh, Palantium with his cavalry, he links up with some Etruscans. And he has a big catalogue of the Etruscans. And he talks about the things that the Etruscans are distinctive for, the things that they're really famous for especially their particular techniques of um, exdyspacy, of looking into animal guts and predicting the future and so on. And these are things which are still in his day going to be alive in the city. Uh, he's, he's well aware that the Etruscans are important players in the formation of the city of Rome. Um, he's got an interest in um, the early badges of monarchy, the kinds of things that modern historians believe the Etruscans contributed. This is very controversial at the moment. People like Tim Cornell, the historian that I, that I cited, Uh, during my talk, uh, Tim Cornell is actually trying to push back against the idea of of an Etruscan city or an Etruscan occupation. So people debate this the way they do, but but certainly in Virgil's presentation, uh, he's extremely interested in the way that the Etruscans have their contribution to make to Roman culture. He's extremely interested uh, in, in, again, the Greek dimension, even though I think even he knew it was unhistorical. I mean, there were no actual Greeks in Palantium in 1000 BC, but nonetheless... um, Uh, There are lots of other peoples in the local area, the Latins themselves, of course. I mean, the Trojans come, and Aeneas is a Trojan, but the Trojans wear funny clothes. I mean, we're told this explicitly in Book 7, when one of the messengers comes to the local king and he says, there are these really strange guys coming along, really wearing strange clothes in Yota and Wester, in an unknown dress. So that has to go. They become Latins. They speak Latin. They wear the toga. They don't wear all this frilly stuff that Trojans wear and they don't speak Trojan. So you get this continual um, melting pot. Really, it's not anachronistic. I, I think uh, the Roman attitude to citizenship, the Roman attitude to the way that you can buy into the community, uh, and that different um, peoples who buy into the community can contribute something distinctive, it's not at all anachronistic to think in these terms. Thank you. You're yes, Bridget. A
0: uh, question may maybe a non-starter. Please just... Please let it go. Um, I found very striking in your lecture the presentation of two two registers, Um, and I wanted to ask you about their potential interrelationship. One is the register of the walking bodies, um, and in particular, two bodies walking together and setting a certain pace through an everyday space, which is really beautifully evoked by your presentation. And then the calendrical register, the apparatus of the calendar, as an institutional apparatus, but also to a certain degree an apparatus for inscription. And I wonder if you can say something about how those two registers interact within the Virgilian text in terms of its structures, its pacing, its whether they do... I mean, I have have other models in mind, and I don't don't know whether it does interact here.
2: I haven't thought about it in those terms, but it's very thought-provoking. I mean, we certainly move from, for example, the 12th of August in the Forum Boarium with the Order of Hercules to the 18th of August with the Temple of Julius Caesar to the 13th, 14th, 15th as we walk under the arch. So movement through the space of Rome is taking us into different, uh, different moments of evocative time. We associate these monuments with points in time. Uh, and this is, is something that... Uh, Ancient historians are very interesting in the moment. Uh, Jürg Rübke, in particular, a very important German ancient historian, has done some very good work on the way that the monuments in the city don't just evoke some uh, vague idea of the past, but actually a specifically dated one. That's when we were doing this, that's when we were doing that. The movement through the city um, as a piece of education is extremely important too. Uh, and Evander, of course, is standing in for Aeneas' father, who was dead. And Evander, when he was young, met... Aeneas's father when he was young, so he is a father figure too. So it's not just the tourist guide saying, "Oh, it's like this," but also the father educating the son. This is our past. This is what this place means and the time it's connected to. This is what this place means and the time it's connected to. Yeah, but I hadn't, I hadn't connected these two registers in the way that you're suggesting. But I'll certainly think about that. Thank you. It's gone.
1: I just a little question. Angusti uh, angusti and Augusti techti, should we be looking for these kinds of things in there? I mean, he makes a lot of the connections very explicitly, but
2: that one seems to be sort of clever. Are there more of those? Yes, um, Scott's asking the 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 pun, I suppose. It's practically a pun, isn't it? Where where the Angusti tecti, the narrow house of Evander, is easily transformable by the Augustan reader into the later, 1,000 year later, angusti, uh, tek, augusti tecti, so narrowness becomes greatness. Um, are these puns elsewhere uh, in this part of the poem? Virgil does like punning. I mean, all poets like punning. Um, Bob, do you know? <laughs> um, I mean Mugira of the cows puns on Porta Mugonia, so there's another time shift activated. Um, so, but uh, I, you're right. I've been lazy. I should have looked harder for more. I'll I'll uh, I'll, I'll do that. Right. So. No,
0: <laughs>
2: it's all right. I could tell. Very... <laughs> yeah. Yes.
1: Is, is there any precedent to this sort of historical presentation in terms of places in? Roman or Greek literature where people are on the site of, uh, where
2: where there's comparisons made between the current setting and what's happening? Now I should know the answer to that. While I'm thinking, um, I'll say that there's an extraordinarily important follow-up in the poet Lucan um, uh, writing, you know, let's say 65 AD. 80, 90 years later, where he has Julius Caesar go to the site of Troy, and he has a similar little tour. And there's this guy, but but there it's it's a sick parody. It's a horrible, horrible rewriting of the Aeneid. Um, Caesar blunders over the tomb of Hector, and the the, the tour guide says, hang on, hang on, that's the tomb of Hector. He doesn't even recognize it. He doesn't know anything. Everything's overgrown. Lucan says, etiam periera ruinae, Even the ruins are ruined. You know, (laughs) it's a whole place. So Lucan picked up on what Virgil is doing here, but are there precedents? Um, I, something else I should have thought harder about. Ronnie, um, do you have a precedent? No, no, no you have a question. <laughs> I, I'd be grateful for emails from anybody who can think of precedents. So, but thank you. It's, a, it's an interesting question. Yeah.
0: So even, I think even in spite of the, It's also fundamentally a, a panegyric for the events made and commemorative in that aspect, looking at how far the Romans have come from their humble origins. But I wonder um, how you think this reconciles itself with Virgil's attitude towards that is, Virgil at the end of the poem, which mm-hmm. is very quite
2: different. Right? Yeah. Yes. Um, no, that, uh, you're right. I mean, his his awareness of It's almost become a cliche in Virgilian criticism, you know, the cost of empire. His awareness of this is very, very strong and very heightened. And the end of the poem shows it very vividly. Um, One of the interesting ways in which the poem works with these problems is again through time. Because if you stand back far enough, it all seems okay. Jupiter says to Venus at the beginning of book one, don't worry, everything will be fine. Aeneas of Adulation, you'll found a place and then 333 years later Rome will be founded and the Romans will rule the world and it's, it's great, cheer up. It's, and it, that feels good. And then by the time you get to the end of the 12th book, you're shattered because you're actually are moving from that thousand year perspective down and down and down into Aeneas putting his sword in the chest of Turnus, And that's actually what it's like if you're doing it. You can stand back in Virgil's day in 20 BC and say, wow, haven't we done well? You know, but the poem is all the time reminding us of what it actually takes to create an empire and to maintain it. Yeah? Yes, sir. Oh, sorry. Oh. No. You mentioned yeah. the connection between Augustus and Apollo and
1: Jango and a way I was wondering if you thought there was any connection with the unity and Ion, which is also used for the Nucleus to uh, mm-hmm. the state of Athens. Mm-hmm.
2: Right, no, no, that's that's very. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Um, uh, the question was about uh, the way that you, the Athenian uh, tragic playwright Euripides, uses uh, in, in his play *The Ion*. Apollo also is an extremely important figure at Delphi, and this is explanatory of the nature of the Athenian city and so on. Um, absolutely, I mean this is something, this is one of the many ways in which the Aeneid is a very tragic poem. I mean it's tragic with a small t, meaning it's quite sad at times, but it's also tragic in that it, look, it, it understands the way that tragedy does things. And the Athenian dramatists were phenomenally skillful at using etiological myths and, and using explanatory stories as a way of shedding light on the present and this interplay between the past and the present is something which of course uh, he really learned from tragedy I think. He couldn't learn it from Homer. Um, I'm going to embarrass my friend Andrew Ford by by, uh, recommending his lovely book Homer the Poetry of the Past because in Homer's epic there is no past, there is no history and the connections between the past time of the epic action and the present of the audience there is no link, there is no bridge that you can build. When the singer sings, the ancient heroes come to life again, and when he stops singing, they go back into the twilight. That's all there is to it. Whereas in Virgil, there are these dynamic links all the time between the past and the present, and this is precisely uh, uh, what, what we see in tragedy again and again. The Ion is a very good example, especially since are actually looking up at the Temple of Apollo and talking about what's on it, uh, which is something we're invited to do here. Um... Uh, I showed you the image of Apollo with his uh, quiver. That that looks nice, but uh, if you go up to the Temple of Apollo, uh, if you'd walked in, you know, just 50, 100 yards away, the big bronze doors, on the, which don't survive anymore, but we know from uh, contemporary accounts that on those big bronze doors, Apollo and his sister Diana were shown uh, shooting to death with their arrows, the seven sons and the seven daughters of Niobe because she had bragged that Leto only had two children and I've got 14. So by the end of the play, she hasn't got any. Uh, so these, uh, yeah, well, what the temple looks like is very important for the, for the reader as well. Uh, Aeschylus is Oristeia. you know, why is Athens the way it is? Well, let me tell you. So yes, uh, it's an important point and, and again, worth stressing how, how radically un-Homeric it is. Uh, I guess I'm like a lot of people. I take the core
0: to the best of the epic. Like St. Augustine. <laughs> and then I'm wondering um, how you might, might work in or, or work with the picture of Carpenter being a practice. Yes. This of as
1: well.
2: Yes. Yes. Um, the question is about, about Carthage and the foundation of Carthage, uh, which Aeneas sees in book one and briefly participates in, in fact, in book four. Uh, he, uh, he forgets his duty and uh, starts, uh, starts pitching in and, and helping build the wrong city. Um, the, yeah, the links between Carthage and Rome in this poem are very, very important. Carthage is a kind of mirror image of Rome um, in all kinds of ways. In fact, had been for a long time before Virgil, uh, the, uh, the Alexandrian scholar Eratosthenes said that the conventional Greek distinction between the Greeks and the barbarians is uh, overdone. It's over-schematic. He said there are world, well-governed barbarians. This is about 250 BC. He says, look at the Carthaginians and the Romans. They've got good constitutions, and in fact the Carthaginian constitution and the Roman constitution are very similar. And even Cato the Elder who bore more individual responsibility for the destruction of Carthage in 146 than any other person, even he said uh, in his uh, lost history that uh, the Carthaginian constitution was very similar to the Roman. So all of the things that the Romans say about the Carthaginians, in fact, could be said about themselves. Eastern origin, cruelty, barbarism, (laughs) uh, wealth. I mean, they they keep saying, look at those Carthaginians, they're so disgusting. But everything they say is, in fact, uh, about themselves. So so yes, what we see in book one and, and then also briefly in book four is, is a is a reflection upon the way that these two cities not only have interlocked fates and destinies, but are in fact mirror images of each other. Yeah, uh wasn't I I think
0: there is also in connection with parapet because that when I look at the it's not another moment in which come to the present, uh, because uh, during Augustan times, uh, finally Carpenter was being redeemed. I mean, Caesar started it, but then stopped, uh, and uh, Augustus was finally uh, able to bring the carpet back, because there had been sort of a superstition that had not been revealed for a while, and only in Augustan times, yes, really did
2: Right, exactly. Um, That's... that's, uh... Thank you, that's an important point. Uh, when Julius Caesar first started the work of rebuilding Carthage, he chose the significant interval of 100 years. 146 BC, he started rebuilding in 46. I mean, not that he knew it was 46 BC. But, um, but anyway, So I mean, he, had, he had his own ways of counting 100 years, and so this is a significant moment. Okay, 100 years have gone by, that's long enough, we can rebuild.
1: Composers, poets, authors will start out They will have first drafts and second drafts and third drafts. Is there any evidence of a draft other
2: than the final in the Is There's no independent evidence. We're told by ancient biographers that Virgil did compose a, a prose draft first and then he went through. But he didn't start at the beginning and go to the end. He sort of woke up on Tuesday and said, I think I'll do this bit and then he did another bit. Um, He was composing at the meteoric rate of three lines a day. So (laughs) it took him nine or ten years, and it wasn't quite finished when he died. There's no doubt whatsoever about that. There are half lines, which he would certainly have filled out, um, apart from the independent biographical tradition, which says that he said there was another three years' work to do. Um, The fact is that uh, one of the things that I find very piquant about reading the poem is that everything he was talking about was changing all the time. We say, oh, the poem is about Augustus, because he wasn't called Augustus. He wasn't called Augustus until 27 B.C. So Virgil's been working on the poem for three years. Suddenly he gets this new name. Uh, so everything is changing. History is always changing. <laughs> and the Aeneid is, is about the human urge to fix and define and pin it down, and the realization of the fact that in the end you never really can.
0: Please join me in thanking Professor Pini for a <laughs> wonderful talk Vielen Dank.